Good morning. Uh, and welcome to today's lecture of software engineering. Our topic today is software. So we're going to talk about various models that have been developed in our field to improve the process. Uh, anyone remember a good definition for what we mean by process? So when we talk about process improvement, what do we, we mean by that? Okay, I'll have some coffee until you come up with the answer. Come on, help me out. You all know it's not that difficult at all. So when we talk about process improvement, what do we mean? What is the thing we improve? What is the process? The way we do things. Thank you. Very simply. So when we talk about software process improvement, we are talking about changing the way software gets developed in the organization. We look at it basically at three levels. We have models for the individual engineer that are more or less crazy. We'll start with one, one uh, model developed for that. Uh, if you are really anal retentive, this model will suit you perfectly. We'll soon understand why. We're going to briefly talk about something called uh, the team software process that relies upon the first model we talk about, which is the personal software process. That is for applying the PSC and the T to teams. And then finally, we are going to talk about the most widely used model for software process improvement. We're going to talk about the CMMI. Uh, any of you heard about the CMM or CMMI before? Well, after this lecture, you will. You might run into it uh, in real life. The TSP and TSP that we're talking about first uh, are just to show you uh, examples of the kind of models that our field has developed. They are not as widely practiced as the CML. But let's start looking into these models. So, again, just to remind you of the motivation for why to look into the way people do things. Uh, here's the repetition, the Avis organizational diamond. Uh, you can see we need to have the process, the structure, the people, and the technology in place uh, in order to have an organization perform well. Uh, and it has been noted uh, in the late 80s, started something in the software engineering field that we could call the process movement, a process and quality movement uh, that happened much earlier in the field of manufacturing. In the manufacturing, you, you might have heard about quality management and quality focus and so on, quality systems, ISO 9000 and so on. In the late 80s, this became very popular, same ideas also in the field of software engineering. So also the CMMI considers itself a way of applying quality thinking to software engineering. Uh, when, we start, when a new movement starts, uh, you typically help with processes. So that happened in software engineering too. The models that are most important that you might run into, so you need at least to be familiar with their names and their basic ideas are the ones listed here. Uh, the personal software process that we'll talk about first, but it tries to answer the question, how can I, as an individual, when I develop software? The team software process then applies to larger projects that are the size of teams. You could also view, in a way, that the agile models, descriptive 
process improvement models for teams. Then we have uh, the most important models, the CMM, the CMMI, and the Sponge standard. These are standardized assessment models and improvement models for software engineers. The idea here in the assessment model is that you have or questions, things that uh, the model considers important for good software development. Then you go through the checklist, do you do this, do you have that, how do you do this, okay, and then you get a score. And then you can use the model also to improve to get higher scores. We'll look more into how it works uh, a bit later today. But the idea with the reference models is that there is an existing model that essentially can be used as a checklist to see whether you do the things you should and whether you do them uh, the right way. So these are the refer this is the reference model idea. Then if we look at ISO 9000, uh, it essentially says that the most important thing isn't that you have something that is pres prescribed in, a, in an existing model. The most important thing is that you model and understand your own processes and that you are able to repeat them. So this is another approach, uh, in a way, focusing on modeling and understanding uh, your existing software processes. Or you can use those models also to improve them. A related approach or related approaches are the quality improvement paradigm and the idea of, of having an experience factory. Uh, we'll briefly mention those as well. But uh, the most important models or most influential models have all been developed uh, by one organization, in particular uh, the CMM, various CMM versions. So please, this is a good website for you to remember. It's SEICMU.edu. You can find lots of interesting stuff for software engineers from the Software Engineering Institute. So SEI stands for Software Engineering Institute. So this is the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. They have lots of documents, not only of these reference models, but also if you become interested in project management, in measurement, whatever, in software engineering, they have lots of material that is useful and available for free. So it's a good idea to check out their website. Uh, they have software process frameworks at three levels. As I mentioned, going from below, we have the PSP for individual engineers, we have the team software process for teams, and then we have the CMMI for, or CMM for uh, whole organizations. And the original model developed was the CMM. So the idea was to take a model and, and use that model to assess organizations, to say how good they are at developing software. But we are going to start uh, from the individual level, from the personal level. So we have the, the model that we're going to look at tries to answer the question, how can I as an individual uh, be better, become better at developing software? And it says that there are three activities that we do whenever we develop software as individuals. We should plan to some degree what we're going to do. We should design. We should review our high-level design. Then we should develop, that is, do the actual coding. And then we should do a post-mortem. The post-mortem 
It's a way of analyzing, well, how well can we do the task that we uh, did? And this model, uh, prescribed by the personal software process, is extremely strict. Uh, and it adds uh, lots of uh, stuff, as you will see soon. It's, it's very disciplined. Uh, the guy developed, who developed the personal software process, Humphrey, uh, he's a nuclear engineer, a trained nuclear physicist. And they, for certain reasons, need to be very, very systematic and document absolutely everything they do and think about. That's the way he works, so all software engineers should, should do this, too. And uh, this can be different. So let's look at uh, the idea. The basic idea in the personal software process is extremely sound. It says, in order for anyone to learn and improve, he, must, he or she must measure their own activities. So the PSP is essentially a measurement-based model that, that helps you improve by measuring everything you do. And when I say everything and measure, I do mean it. I mean you measure your time on a minute level. So I coded for two minutes, had coffee three minutes, went to the bathroom, uh, 15 minutes, Coded, one minute, talk to my girlfriend, two minutes, whatever. And you would log this, everything, at this level. And then, uh, when you log your, when you do your code, you are supposed to do a code review before you compile. So then you will log missing semicolon, log. Uh, race, wrong place, log. And so on. And you would do this before compiling. Because according to the PSP, every compiler error is a bug that you also then need to record. So uh, this is a model that tends to drive people crazy when they try it. But let's look at it into more detail. Oh. The ideas are sound, though the implementation can get a bit uh, difficult for many people. The ideas are standard work based on personal data. So you are the only, your data from your own project is the only you are encoding, and how many errors you will make, and how long it will take. And in order to improve, you need to measure and use the data. So, and then it has the ideas from quality management, if you touch the bugs as early as possible, so having a compiler check for bugs is totally unacceptable, according to the PSP models. It's more efficient to prevent the bugs that uh, define and correct them later. And it says that the easiest way is the fastest and cheapest way to do any job. We'll look at some statistics soon about the uh, effects of using the PSP. Uh, when you and then you work your way through up to PSP level 2, a PSP or PSP3, even if you do a large project. And each level, as you can see here, PSP0 uh, says that you use your current process. That is what the book says. Then it says your current process, by the way, is this. Use this. So, uh, but it essentially says start, you start measuring your uh, time usage and bugs and so on. Then in PSP0.1, you add coding standards and for post-mortem usage, you add something called process improvement proposal, PIPs. That is, after each task you have coded, you would think about what did I do well, what could I do better, 
and that you would write that down in a process improvement proposal. And then it also adds site measurements uh, to measure the lines of code you uh, develop in, in PSP. Then you go to PSP1, then you add size estimation. So you would, before coding anything, you would start estimating how many lines of code will this task be uh, using some systematic methods. And you also add testing reports. Then we go further to add task and schedule planning and code reviews and design reviews in PSP2. And PSP2.1 even has some design templates. The book on PSP is around a thousand pages. So it's very easy reading that is good for you to have in your, on your bed because you will wake up when it hits you when it falls asleep. It's very heavy. Uh, it's an interesting read. It contains lots of, lots of statistics. Uh, so let's see how the PSP process looks. Again, understanding that we have a nuclear physicist who documents everything, the PSP is very structured. And for everything to do here, there are scripts that say that this is what you do. The process says that first you plan, then you design, then when you have designed the, soft, the task you are going to implement, you do a design review with yourself. You go through the do a walkthrough, then you go to review the code. And until you have reviewed the code and fixed everything you find there, are you allowed to run the compiler? So then you write the whole code for the task, then you review the whole code, then you run the compiler. Whatever the compiler complains about is considered a bug. Okay? Then you test the software, and then you do a postmortem again, thinking about what did I do well, what could I do better, and so on. And now tell me, uh, what do you think about the idea of consider everything that the compiler tells you about? Is it a bad idea to defer running the compiler as much as possible? What do you think? This is probably the I think uh, you to use the compiler to automatically check for certain common errors because Okay, so your viewpoint is that the compiler will find problems quicker than any human. Uh, a certain type of problems, yes. Okay. And the, the language you're writing in is good, then the compiler... What do you mean, very fast, strongly typed? Yeah, yeah, static, strong typing. So the compiler can okay. find more of those. Okay. Okay. You all agree? Yep. And again, not running compiler builds. It's not running as a compiler, there's discipline. In, in, in particular, there's a penalty to having the compiler complain. Okay. Should we have a vote? How many think it's a good idea to run the compiler as often and as quickly as possible to see? When the code compiles, I'm on the right track. Raise your hands if you think that's a good idea. Okay. How many think we should run the compiler as late as possible when we have done everything we can to check the code quality before that? Nobody. Huh. Okay. This is very typical. I don't have good data. Uh, very many, many senior people in the field have said that the worst thing we ever gave to students were compilers. Or going even back, the last thing you should give to a beginning programmer is a computer. These have been, these have been arguments by guys who have developed uh, much in our field. 
because they say that using the compiler very quickly makes you think that you should, you shouldn't, you don't have to think so much yourself because you can check it. if the compiler okay, it then it's probably okay. So you will end up writing a lot more bugs doing, working that way than you would if you work more uh, in a more systematic way, reviewing code. So it's not something I have extremely good data on. We're going to see it. there's some data in the PSP that actually says that you won't lose uh, uh, efficiency by not running the compiler early. So it's the same idea you might remember that we talked about compare programming. You have somebody reading over your shoulder. You will write better code. So here's the same idea. Since you will have be penalized for writing floppy code and just trying it through the, running it through the compiler, it will force you to write higher quality code. So it's a, it's a matter of discipline. Uh, personally, I don't have any strong viewpoints. In my young days, I wrote some code uh, on paper when I was sailing. It was before I had any laptop in, in that archipelago. It worked fine when I started it. So I know from personal experience it's possible to code without the computer. Uh, would I do it again? Nah. It's much more fun to do it with the computer. Okay. The computer is not your debugger. You are your debugger yourself. That's the idea here in the PSP. And the scripts that are, uh, that we have a very, describe each stage. So here is a script that is, that is very close to unreadable. Uh, basically what it says is, this is for PSP1. I don't have any laser pointers here. Can you see my arrow? No. Do you have a mission point? Okay. Uh, going from the top, we have some entries. The structure is important here, not the details. I will not ask you to repeat the PSP1 script in the exam. Don't worry. So what it says here is that these are some entry criteria for going into PSP1. So when you start a coding task according to PSP and you are at level 1, uh, you should have a problem description. You should have a plan summary form. Oh, boy. Because this guy love forms, I'm going to show you some soon. Then you have a size estimation template. You have historical estimates based upon your own previous performance and actual size data. You have time and defect recording logs. You have defect type standards, and you have a stopwatch. Okay, I know one guy who tried this. Uh, he had a stopwatch, but he finally it wasn't that practical. So he he got himself a chest clock. You know, bling bling, because According to the PSP, when you log time, you're supposed to log also interruptions. So when he was at work, he had this uncoding, bling. Okay, somebody comes into his room, bling. You are interrupting me. Okay, without bling. <laughs> and what he noticed was the people stopped, com stopped coming to his room. So it apparently worked really well. <laughs> yeah, um, he, uh, I think he did it for half, half a year almost. Then his wife said, demanded that he stopped because he started using it as well, too. <laughs> and uh, his experiences, he, he was here several years ago telling, telling about his experiences with the PSP, and what he said was, was the most interesting thing that was that he actually got better in estimation, and the most embarrassing thing that happened was that he, in his company they had some problems with the database, 
and it's all good closure. She said, well, I had nothing to do with that. I can, I can prove it to you. I can check here from my mom what I've been doing, according to the PhD. Okay, here, blah, 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 ten minutes before it was, yeah, I was just updating something in the database. Oops. So it was his fault. That was what they considered the most embarrassing thing, but, but, uh, uh, was there a major improvement in his life, or how, in, in, in his way of coding? No. Okay, but you have entry criteria here, then you have planning. So th then what are you doing when you plan according to PSP1? You produce or obtain a requirement statement. What are you supposed to do? Uh, then there's a method called probe to estimate uh, the number of new and changed lines of code. I will not talk about the probe method. Uh, then there is, then you complete the size estimation template. So you say, okay, even this task, it will be about 500 lines of code that I have to write or whatever. Uh, then you estimate the required development time. You have some, the idea here is you have own, own data that will show you, well, if I have a 500 lines of code that I should need to write, it will take me about X minutes. And you know that based upon your previous performance. And then you enter the data again into a form and you complete the time recording log. Then during developing, you design and implement the program, you compile it, fix all the effects found, you test it, and fix everything and complete the log. And during the postmortem, you again complete some forms. But this is the, the idea. And this is how a time recording log looks like in the PSP. You can see here, student Humphrey. Uh, then you have date, start, stop, interruption time, delta time, phase planning, and comments. You see there, phone call, three minutes, interruption, and so on. So you would go on like this for all your at least your coding tasks. I don't think it's a good idea to use uh, this level of recording at home. Might lead to problems. Okay. Uh, then you have a defect, defect recording log. All defects are classified. You are supposed to build your own defect classification. Uh, here you can see missing semicolon, in, injected in the coding phase, removed in the compile phase, fixed time one minute. So you can, you, you can all See here that filling in the forms will take longer than fixing that missing semicolon. So, if you strictly use a process like this, you will probably start getting those semicolons in there because you don't like to fill in the forms that you miss them. So, I guess this is why it might work. Okay. And I'm sorry if I, I have a bit of attitude with this. There are several people taking this very seriously. So if you find one of them, please bring them to me. They will probably hate me. Uh, and this uh, PSP, has also, it's also several universities teach this as required uh, uh, material on some courses. Uh, we don't. But absolutely, if you are interested in what I would like to try, I do have the two books on the PSP. Okay, then we have a project plan summary. It says like this, time in phase minutes, you have a plan, you have actual to date, and then you get the percentage, so you can see how you spend your time uh, on various phases. You can see your time in planning, actual five minutes, design 30 minutes, code 32 minutes, compile 15 minutes. Uh, the compile phase, that's also, it, it, it doesn't mean 15 minutes, that it takes 15 minutes to run the compiler. It means that it takes you 50 minutes to run the compiler to get all, rid of all the errors and log all the 
bugs that the compiler complains about. There you have a test, and then you have the post-mortem. Then you can see defects injected. How many bugs did you do during planning, design, code, compile, and test? Uh, and how many defects did you remove in the various phases? And now this is interesting in the sense that very few people know what kind of bugs they make systematically. They don't have good data. So now consider this. You are supposed to plan a task. You would be able to say, okay, I think it will be this big. It will take me this long, and I will probably make this many bugs. Nice idea, huh? Most people don't like to plan for how many bugs they are going to have in their programs. Fact is, though, we all make mistakes. There are no coders who code without making mistakes, without getting bugs in their programs. So, again, just the way in which the ideas in the PSP can be very useful. Now, if you started logging at every detail level, all the mistakes you made when you code, you would probably start systematically removing those. So you would become internet coding, and this is what happens when you use the PSP. So, is this all bogus? Is this just nuts? Or is there some reason to this whole thing? Now, according to data, when people get trained in PSP here, uh, they become much better at estimation, first of all. You can see here the effort estimation accuracy trend. Uh, what we all know from experience and also research data supports this is that all programmers are optimists. Well, we need to estimate the task, how long it will take. We tend to underestimate it drastically. And what happens in the PSP is that we become much better at estimation because we follow up exactly what we do at a very detailed level. So you can see that there's a clear uh, increase in the effort estimation accuracy. Now, this is very important, because the most common estimation method used uh, in software development organizations is what we uh, jokingly finish called the HIVA method. How long will it take or what they think? Today. We're going to talk more about the estimation methods later in the course. But the fact is that the most widely used effort estimation methods uh, rely upon asking the people who are going to do the, the job how long it will take. It's called expert estimation. It sounds better than the other, but it's the same thing. They ask people to guess, to estimate. And coders typically are very poor at doing that. So. Uh, a good thing with the PSP that is very, very valuable for the organization is the fact that if you systematically uh, measure and follow up your own estimates and your own coding habits, you will become better at estimation. And this is a major thing. Uh, most project managers uh, have their own coefficients, so they, I know that if I ask Ville how long it will take, uh, he says one hour, I know, okay, I'll first of all multiply it by pi, so it's a bit more than three hours, and then since I'm an experienced project manager, I will add 50%. That will get us close. And now, what, what data, and now this is what project managers jokingly say. We have data saying that most people tend to underestimate by a factor of three. 
when they are inexperienced in estimation. They aren't good at estimation. They're just starting out thinking about They tend to be extremely over-optimistic. What the PSP helps you to do uh, is to become much closer. So let's say you come to plus minus 100% on a task level. And that's extremely good. What you also can see here is uh, the number of defects removing compiling tests. So the more you use PSD, the more defects you remove early. So the less bugs will be removed in compiling and test in their compiling and testing phases. And here you can see uh, lines of new and changed code produced per hour. So you can see, is there a penalty in uh, coding efficiency, productivity? Does productivity decline or not? And here you can see that the lines of, of new and changed code, it goes down when we go into what's called the PSP1, when it comes back up in PSP2. So we don't lose productivity using the PSP, which is uh, interesting. So. Despite the fact that we spend lots of time filling in the forms, uh, we don't lose productivity because uh, we spend less time fixing bugs in the compile and test stages. Now, this data is the data published by the guy who has developed the TSP. So, I have no reason to believe that he fakes it. But it's data based upon his own courses that he has uh, that he has used to teach people using the PSP. The adoption of PSP in industry has been virtually non-existent. So this is more of an academic exercise. But the interesting thing here is that there is some useful aspects of this of the PSP, though it doesn't seem to work for normal people. But the interesting aspect here is the, the most important aspect here is the fact that this is one method that can help us improve our estimation extremely much. And the estimation of how much work is in the software development project is one of the most difficult things we need to deal with. And one of the reasons that many projects are running into problems because we tend to underestimate a lot. So, uh, therefore, the PSP has some value. So it brings a lot of discipline. There's a lot of work. It demands a very strict discipline. Uh, there are lots of statistics involved. It's not very widely adopted in industry. Some universities still teach course, courses on this. Uh, the idea, though, is very sound. So what you can take away from the PSP, which always applies, is the fact that if you measure something and you follow up and use that data, you will improve. So think about it for yourself. Do you know how good you are at estimating? Even when you do your exercises here at the university, when you have uh, whatever coding that's given to you, are you able to estimate? Do you know how good or bad you are? My guess is you don't know. You will just say, okay, I'll do it tonight. Tonight meaning until it's done. You have no idea if it's one hour or five hours. Typically, you would think it's one hour, and it turns out to be the whole night. Yes? You guys measure how much time you measure in the past? Uh, no. That's a very interesting question. 
And one of the uh, criticisms also about the TSP was this was strictly paper-based. There are some Excel sheets available, and there are even uh, open source tools that you can find. Just Google TSP uh, for some software process, you will find free tools that can help you with the data collection. Uh, but this is uh, a model with some, let's say, interesting ideas. So to summarize, the pro at the personal level, actually this is the only good model, the only model we have that really deals with how you as a coder could improve. Uh, it's not widely adopted, but the empirical data states that it, there's some reason to it in all its madness. Uh, there are two books. The original book, which is almost a thousand pages, uh, very light reading. Then there's escape downwards in the version of the book because uh, I think one of the initial problems was that no code ever made it through the whole first book. So, so there's an escape down version uh, of the PSP. If you're interested, just let me know. I'll be happy to show you uh, the books. And for, for the team level, uh, same what Humphrey also uh, said that we can use PSP if we have a set of people that all use the PSP. We can put them together and turn that into the TSP, the team software uh, process. So there is a lack of improvement models. So we, we don't have any good models in, in our field for going into a team, uh, measuring how good they are, and saying, okay, this is how you should improve. We don't have models like that. We have, though, a set of prescriptive models. Prescriptive models, meaning models that say, I don't care what you do. This is how you should do things. Uh, the TSP is the one I'm going to talk about now, but also the agile software development models contain practices that all teams are supposed to use. And they have been used with uh, Fairly uh, large, uh, uh, we have a large amount of success stories of agile software development, uh, so they seem to work uh, in certain contexts. Four small teams developing non-critical software, at least. Uh, and then we have the TSP, which I mentioned here because I talked about the uh, PSP. So this is the same guy who developed the PSP, said, okay, this is nice, let's do the same thing for teams. So it says that we have self-directed teams that measure because everybody on the team is using the personal software process. Uh, and all the measures also are used to uh, understand and analyze uh, the team's process. What I'm not going to go into now is the details of the measurement in the TSP because uh, it's very similar to what happens in the TSP. There are, however, in the team software process things that are useful for also other teams that don't have everybody using the PSP. It defines a set of roles, uh, uh, for example, that we tend to have in most teams. It defines roles like the team leader, a development manager, a planning manager, a quality manager, uh, quality and process manager, and a support manager. Uh, this means, of course, that if we have a five-people team, everyone, everyone can be a manager. That's nice. Uh, however, in the TSP, uh, everybody is also a developer. So we have no pure management roles. And so the manager here means that you have responsibility for some part of the software process in addition 
to your own coding activities. And that is what I'm going to talk about the TSP. There is a book and it's also a, a, a process that you can buy from uh, the Software Engineering Institute. This is a good place for uh, a break because then we're going to talk about the most important things today, uh, the organizational level process improvement models. So let's take a 10 minute break, then we'll uh, continue and in, we'll continue at 11 shy. All right, let's continue. So now let's talk about organizational level software process improvement. Organizational level here means the whole software development organization, at the typically at the corporate level. Now you can see here uh, the conceptual idea behind uh, software process assessment models. We have the software process here at the top, which we examine by using software process assessment models. This then is thought to lead to software process improvements that help us modify the software process. And it also, the assessment leads to us determining the capability, that is how good our software process is in the organization. So process assessments can formally be viewed as a disciplined evaluation of an organization's software process against a reference model. Now, uh, the process is assessed against the model to ensure or check whether it meets a set of criteria that is listed in the uh, reference model. And notice here that it says that it's a set of criteria that is believed to be essential for successful software engineering. So these reference models are not built upon extensive empirical data. They are the thought childs of, in the CLM case, a few individuals, or in the SPICE uh, model, the ISO standard, a committee. So this is the common belief of people that these are the essential criteria. There are different ways of using these models. There is the official appraisal model in which an external consultant, certified consultant, certified assessor, comes into your organization, talks to your people, interviews your people, looks at your documents, and then gives you an assessment uh, of your software process. You can also use it for self-assessment. Uh, originally, the CMM model, the Capability Maturity Model, which is the most widely used model for assessment, was developed to help the Department of Defense in the United States uh, assess the software development capability of its subcontractors. So the idea here was that you take this model, you go to any potential subcontractor, and then you get a score, so you know how good that subcontractor is at developing software. That was the original use uh, for these models, and actually today, uh, in certain fields, uh, companies uh, wanting to bid on project proposals are required to have, for example, to achieve a certain level uh, in the CMM. We'll see the levels soon. Let's talk about the CMM first. So the most widely used model is the software CMM. Uh, 
which was put forward in 1986 by the Software Engineering Institute, written by uh, Watts Humphrey. And the fundamental idea here was to improve the software process because that would lead to improved software quality and better timeliness on our projects uh, and better uh, also keeping the budgets. And improved management would lead to improved techniques. Uh, the CMM says that each and every organization can get a profile current today uh, saying uh, uh, on five levels of maturity uh, how good it is. So the CMMI, which is the current model, I stands for integrated, CMM for capability maturity model. So the CMMI uh, defines a set of process areas that you should be looking at in software engineering. And these areas are defined in terms of so-called specific goals that you should achieve in, within that process area, as well as specific practices that are ways things you should do to achieve those goals. So the specific, specific goals say what things should be there uh, in order for a process area to be effective, and the specific practices say what are the things you should be doing. The CMM defines five levels that you look at. Level one is the initial level. This is ad hoc software development. You are not systematic. Most organizations tend to be at that level. At level two, uh, you're able to repeat successful similar projects. Then you would have basic project management, software configuration management, subcontractor management, and other processes in place. At level three, you're required to have an organizationally defined and practiced software process. At level four, you would have instituted uh, organizational-wide measurements for your software process. And at level five, you would be able even to achieve statistical process control. So this is the idea. And the idea here is that you wor work your way up through these stages. In the original level, each organization got a single score. You're a five, you're a three, you're a one, whatever. So meaning also, for example, that if you otherwise fulfilled all the criteria on levels three, four, and five, but you missed something at level two, then you would be a level one. The maturity levels contain key process areas, things that you should have in place. Uh, in the initial maturity level, you don't need to have anything. To go, get up to level two to be repeatable, you would work on having software configuration management practices in place, software quality assurance, subcontract management, project tracking and oversight, project planning, and requirements management. This would be the processes that uh, the assessors uh, would need to find and see that you perform systematically in your organizations. They would need to be in place. Most organizations uh, that use the CMM in Finland work with levels two and three. Uh, in particular, uh, companies in India have been known for being at levels four and five. Uh, you can find lots of organizations at level four and five. 
Now, then we, the, the, then we have, of course, another interesting question, which is, do these customers develop a better software or not? That is a question that it's not, it's not at all easy to answer. If I would have to answer it with one word, I would say absolutely no. They don't. But they have better processes. Uh, I have uh, also a case study I did many years ago. An organization in Finland, uh, in the telecom area, dropped from level 3 to level 2, based upon uh, an explicit decision, because some of the requirements in the CMM model didn't fit the organizational needs. Did this mean that they developed some worse software after dropping the CMM level? No. If you looked at other measures like mean time between failure in their systems, project schedule adherence, did they deliver on time, did they keep their budget, they improved steadily. But they didn't fulfill the requirements of the CMM, thus according to this model they would have been poorer. Yes? How did you define better and worse software? Uh, in CMM, uh, you define good ac according to the levels you achieve. It has nothing to do with the actual software you deliver. So my point here was that actually the relationship that the CMM uh, works with is the uh, simple idea that having a better process will give you better software, meaning less, for, less faults in the software, it will better meet the requirements, and your project will better meet your, the schedule and the budget. This is the idea. We have several case studies showing that it's not that simple. You can go down on the CMM and still improve on the real outcome measures, like quality of the software, like project measures. So the relationship is not as clear as the guys behind the CMM would like us to believe. Did I answer your question? Yes. Okay. Good. So at level three, then we would uh, work on getting a single process defined for the whole organization. We have things like organization process focus, we have training programs, we define the process, we have integrated management, product engineering, these are our defined activities that we need to do, intergroup coordination, and we would institute peer reviews. All of these key process areas are then described in more detail in the model uh, using uh, these uh, practices. Also, all the CMM models are available for free from the website, so if you're interested in reading through these assessment models, uh, it's, uh, just go and download them. Uh, at level four, we have software quality management and quantitative process management. We are striving for statistical control of software processes. We will have a lecture in the second part of the course uh, on software measurement. My personal belief is that the applicability of statistical software process control software development is very, very limited in scope. Uh, it's typically not attainable. And at level five, we have process change management, technology change management, and defect prevention uh, as key process areas. Uh, here in Finland, we work typically with level two and three in most large organizations. This uh, slide here, this is uh, uh, taken from the CMM, so it's not based upon uh, empirical data. This is the, uh, 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 a slide showing you the line of thought behind the CMM answering, uh, helping to answer the question we just got. So it says that when we are at level one, 
if we look at the fly, the, the chart on the bottom. Then we have a time schedule, whatever we have a target for. We have the target there. You can see the line going through the x-axis that the target. And it says that the distribution of probabilities for achieving that target looks like that. So we would typically not meet the target. We would overrun our schedule. We would overrun uh, our budget with a higher probability than meeting the target. Uh, it also, we can also say that the distribution is quite wide. And now, the idea in the CMM, the thought behind CMM is that as we go up to higher levels, we would see two things. First of all, we would see that we get closer and closer to the target if we look at the probability distribution. Uh, and then we, we also see that, uh, that, that it gets uh, more narrow, so we, we have a much higher probability of achieving uh, the goal, goals. Now, this is uh, the line of thought. This is not based upon evidence from organizations using the CMM. This is just, this is what we think will happen if you use our model. Uh, here are some uh, measurements of what happens, uh, what, what happened in Motorola when they applied the CMM. You can see at level one, we have a number of projects assessed at different levels. Uh, we have relative decrease in duration, so we can see how much faster, uh, shorter projects did we have. So when they went from CMM level one to level five, they got a 7.8 decrease in duration. So the project became much faster. We have faults per million, million lines of code detected during development. You can see here, we don't have data from level one because they didn't gather that data originally. But we can also see uh, a factor of about eight. And then we have the relative productivity numbers. So you can see here that according to this data from Motorola in one of their organizations, they got much better quality and much uh, higher productivity when using the CMM. Now, the problem with the data we have from the CMM is that we have only data from organizations using the CMM. We don't have data uh, on organizations using other approaches for software process improvement. If we look at management science, we know that one of the best ways of getting an organization to improve is to focus on something. Management puts attention on that. So we have no way of saying how much uh, of these uh, improvements are due to the, using the CMM, how much of them are just due to the fact that management says we need to improve our software development process. But uh, the point with this slide is that uh, the CMM can clearly help you improve both on productivity and on uh, keeping your schedules and getting higher quality uh, in your software development. The CMM is a model that you probably, if you spend your working uh, life in software development organizations, uh, at least in certain fields, you will absolutely run into it. So it's a model that uh, you should know of and you should uh, also remember to read the very short description of the CMM that you find in the book. It's an important model. ISO 9000. 
is also something that you, you can run into. There are companies that uh, try to get certifications for software development, also ISO certifications. So ISO is a set of five standards. But we have something called the ISO 9003 that are guidelines for applying ISO to software. It's not actually a process improvement methodology. ISO essentially just says that you, you need to develop a quality system that documents your processes, and then you should follow those processes. When we assess you, uh, you must be able to show me, show us A, the documentation of the processes, and B, we should be able to see that you follow that documentation. Uh, it also emphasizes process measures uh, uh, in your work. So the idea here is that you have a build a quality system, typically documented in a handbook. There have been in our field lots of attempts also on bu in building quality handbooks on web-based systems. Their impact has been very little, very small. But the idea here, of course, is that you have a quality system documenting all the good practices in your organization. And then you use the quality system, the quality handbooks, to teach people how to do that. Uh, and then as soon as you learn new things, you would improve the quality system. Uh, and thus the quality handbook, the quality system, would always contain the best practices that you have in your organizations. Uh, and you would also have audits that check that people follow uh, the quality <laughs> So the ideas are very sound in all these uh, quality systems. The idea is to document your best practices, you make sure that people follow them, and then you improve the, the documentation and the practices as you learn new practices. Very simple idea, very practical. Uh, anyone know what, what I have a friend, friend Johan Rikkele from Nokia. He, he tells me that it often works the wrong way. So what he says happens in many organizations with the quality system is that uh, first of all, you hire people who know nothing about software development to develop the quality system, or you take the people who can't develop software that you hire to develop software, and you think that they do less harm if they develop the quality system than if they code. So you have, A, you put the wrong people to develop the quality system. So they develop something that and write things that could never work, that has never worked, and never will work. And then, instead of them listening to the organization, the coders, to get good practices, they start to force the bad practices they have come up with to the coders. So you have a quality system working the wrong way. And, and he says that this is, the, in his experience, uh, the biggest problems with the quality system. It's a very sound idea, but what happens is that you tend to put people who are not good in doing the actual job in developing the quality system. And if you do that, it will fail. And you have the quality police, uh, the audits people from the quality organization coming to check that uh, you are following the procedures that everybody knows you can't follow because they are <coughs> not well developed. So uh, building a good quality system is very difficult. You need to have good people working on that, which means uh, the people that you do, would like to have coding, uh, developing software, running projects, it's exactly those people that you think don't have the time to develop the quality system that should be developing the quality system. There are, though, 
organizations that succeed in developing good quality systems. We have several of them in Finland. A quality system can support and work well, support the organization and work well, but it's not an easy path. Okay, so to summarize, at the organizational level, we have two basic approaches. We have the assessment model-based idea, uh, which we saw here, the CMM model. We have a reference model containing a list of things that the model says you should do. Then you assess uh, whether you do those things or not. Uh, that is called the assessment mode-based improvement. Then you can also do the ISO way. You can use measurements to measure your existing process, model your existing process, and use that to improve uh, the way you work. The aim of all these approaches is the same, to improve the way you develop software in your organization, to better keep the project timelines, and to do less rework. Huh. Any questions, comments? Anyone work uh, in a quality organization? Okay, you're so young nowadays. Okay. Any questions related to software process improvements or ideas, thoughts you'd like to discuss? If not, then let's go have some lunch and see you all next week. Then we're going to talk about requirements, management, and software design. So see you all next week.